0: On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we sat down with Richard Osler. He's my dear friend, and he talked about his journey in listening and learning about LGBTQ friends and their stories. He learns through their stories and sits with them in their pain for better understanding. I'm excited for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome to our show today. We are so excited uh, for First Lady and Friends. Um, this episode, we are talking to my dear friend, uh, Richard Osler. Welcome to the show.
1: Great, to, glad to be here, Abby, and thanks for your great work.
0: Thank you. Well, I want people to know you. This podcast is about um, sharing stories and people that I uh, love and feel, feel like their story is so um, important. And yours is one of those. Um, so let's let's just talk about who you are. Um, where'd you grow up? Tell me about your your family of origin. Um, just tell me a little bit about you.
1: Sure, listeners. I'm um, native of Utah. Grew up here in Salt Lake City. Graduated from Highland High School in 1979. Um, my parent. I'm 60 years old. My father is alive in this community. He's 90. He's worked at the same company, OC Tanner Company, a Utah company, for 60 years. Um, That's kind of crazy in this world to have worked at a company for 60 years. Um, My parents are alive, and um, they raised six children. I'm one of six children, and I've lived in Utah most of my life, with the exception of some periods of time outside of Utah. I love Utah, and I love our community here, and I love that we're tackling sensitive issues to bring Utahns together, LGBTQ being one of them.
0: I love that. And you've done such incredible work in this space. So so you talked about, you left, I assume that was for school. What Tell me about your, your background, your education background.
1: Yeah, I have a degree from the University of Utah in marketing. And then I went to BYU and uh, met my wife there, got an MBA. And I'm a small business owner here in Utah. Um, but I don't, and we, I don't spend just tons of time. I spend almost as much time in this space um, helping our LGBTQ Utahns as I do in my work, um, but we're, we're I'm a local business owner and I'm grateful to run a business here in Utah and it's a good business environment.
0: It is. It is. We we hope so. We think so, and I think everybody else thinks so now too. Agreed. <laughs> so you you studied marketing um, at so you studied marketing at BYU. Yes. Your undergraduate was in
1: undergraduate was in marketing, and then i I went to BYU. Thinking I would shift to finance and kind of have both of those, but I got drawn back to marketing. I just love consumer behavior—what you know, what consumer needs are out there and products that fulfill them. But especially how to develop messaging to link um, products with consumer needs, and that whole cycle fascinates me. And perhaps that's part of my road to be an ally—is to want to understand LGBTQ people and and what is unique about their journey and what I can do um, to help, you know, sort of meet their needs and understand their journey.
0: I love that. Um, So you met Sheila at BYU, and you were married, and how many children do you have?
1: Yes. Part of the reason, to be honest, Abby, I went to BYU is I left the University of Utah single, and I thought, well, (laughs) there's a lot of um, (laughs) single women at BYU, so I... (laughs) I not, thought I'm thought Not a, a bad, not a I, bad strategy. <laughs> and then I started dating Sheila's roommate, and I made this dumb rule that I never date roommates. So once I started dating Sheila's roommate, Abby, I realized I really wanted to date Sheila, and it took me a, a <laughs> that's couple, always tricky. <laughs> I took me a year of just saying that's a dumb rule, and so uh, um, Sheila's from Texas and loves Texas, and we got married in 1990, and we have six children, three grandchildren, and. And have just loved, raised our family here in Utah. We live in the south part of the valley. Our kids have attended Cottonwood High School and various colleges in and outside of Utah.
0: Oh, that's so neat. Um, So tell me about your kids. You have six. Are they all, they're all still here in the area or?
1: Yeah, we have a daughter in Laguna Nightingale with our only three grandchildren. She's our married daughter. Um, We have four sons, if I get this right. Um, Three are married I'm one single, and we have a single daughter. We have a daughter at Harvard Divinity School in graduate school right now, and she's just one of this younger generation that her worldview is, what can I do to lift the burdens of marginalized groups? And that's why she's at Harvard Divinity School, is to tackle tough international issues, world poverty, education, women's issues, and what a great place for her to be to learn how to do that. So um, I have great faith— um, in the future of the world, um, because of this rising generation and their desire to lift the burdens of others and step into spaces that perhaps my generation wasn 't comfortable stepping into,
0: I agree i have you know you and I have the the way we met um, well, I think I knew who you were on on social media um, I knew that you were doing work in the space with LGBTq folks um, and youth um And I think that's kind of where, you know, we first connected. And then my son, who, again, is part of that generation that you're talking about, um, big hearted, um, really sensitive to, to folks who are struggling, who have been marginalized, who maybe have not had a voice and, um, so I think we met for the first time face to face. We were both walking out of a concert together. Exactly. And, is that right? Hey,
1: I remember that well.
0: <laughs> and I said, I know who you are.
1: <laughs> I just went up and introduced myself, and you did. I was grateful you. You know, we had that connection. And um, but your son and all your kids in this generation—they're so wired that way, Abby—and. Often they look at their religion and saying, what is my religion doing? Not for me, those that are privileged and kind of in the center of privilege. And I grew up in the center of privilege in Utah. But what's my religion and what can I do for those that just have a harder path? And so, you know, that's the way they're wired. And it makes me happy.
0: Uh, it makes me happy, too. It um I, I do have to say, like, our story also continued because, um, and I have to be honest, this makes me emotional because, um, I, I reached out to you when I had a, a son who was my son who was struggling because he does feel all these things and he was headed back to a mission and, and really, really struggling. And, um, I think, you know, you're one of those people that was, that just came to my mind. You, you were it. And, and, uh, I reached out to you in a moment where I kind of didn't know where else to turn. And so you were there and it was, pretty amazing.
1: (laughs) Well, I call those sacred moments, Abby, and I'll get emotional because I just sense how wonderful Sonia is and how much he wants to help people do better in life and how much he cares about people. And he's all invested. He's 100% invested, but sometimes the culture doesn't match up or we add, we make it harder for um, people that want to lift the burdens of others sometimes, or we say unkind things about people on the margins and that makes it harder And I was honored you reached out and I felt some real specific impressions that I shared through you that I think you shared. And um, that's a sacred space for me. And I was um, just honored to be helpful in that situation. And you have a great young, great young son. And it's, it's people like your son that just give me so much hope for the future.
0: Yeah, I think these, these kids really haven't figured out in a lot of ways that we, we haven't figured out. So, um, um, so you know, your, your uh, social media persona is uh, Papa Osler.
1: <laughs> it is. And,
0: uh, you know, it's very fitting to me, but how did, how did this come about? How I'm, did this title or this, this sort of person that you've become?
1: I'm glad you asked. My wife, who has been so dedicated to serving in our schools in the Granite School District, been the PTA president of Cotman High School, and she needed to find a new PTA president, and she just couldn't find one, and she just kept talking out loud in her home. And one day I said to her, can a man be a PTA president? She goes, yeah. And I go, could I be the PTA president of Cottonwood High School? And she goes, seriously? And I go, I, I could do that, you know? I mean, you would have to help me <laughs> um, a lot. And so I became the PTA president of our local high school, um, and it was helpful for me to just sort of step in that space of public education issues. And, yeah, she was kind of the acting PTA president, to be honest. Um, she really guided me and nurtured me. But I had we had a, a son in high school, Matt, great young man, just coming out of BYU's advertising program. And he was on Twitter, and he sort of introduced me to Twitter. And so as I was interacting with the high school students, I wanted them to know I wasn't another high school kid. So I thought, well, I better be clear I'm an adult, and so I just named myself Papa Osler, and that was October of 2010, and I mostly just tweeted about the high school kids and what's going on at Cottonwood High School and the weather, which is another one of my interests. But then later, that has transitioned to be sort of a platform to talk about, in a kind way, LGBTQ people um, and help provide education to lift their burdens and, and help them to help us to better see them as, as God's wonderful children.
0: That's so cool. <laughs> and I think you have. I mean, you, you. I've seen it. I've seen it online. I've seen sort of this father figure um, for anyone, I think, that feels like they don't have that.
1: Yeah. And that really started, um, as I mentioned, I grew up in um, the Salt Lake City area in Cottonwood High School, which is a, Kind of a higher, a higher socio economic area, and I had an LDS church calling where I was assigned to be a, a bishop of a singles congregation, but I was asked to serve in the Magna West Valley area, an area that I was not familiar with, and that happened in 2013, and that was just fascinating for me to kind of get out of my privilege, get out of my bubble, and sit with youth that I wouldn't typically interact with. Youth from other races, youth from other sexual orientations, undocumented workers. And my heart just grew. Brene Brown says people are hard to hate, close up, move in. You're familiar with that. And that's what happened for me as I had responsibility for 300 people in our congregation. And I just met some of the very best people I've ever met that I would never have known before. And and it helped me to see people on the margins in a completely different way. I had developed— um, I call it the trap of unearned opinions where I had to develop opinions about people in a geographic area or in an eth- a certain race or, being, or their, their, um, their citizenship status. And it took time to sort of say, I'm not going to develop opinions about a group of people until I meet with people in that group. And that's, then it helps me to lift their burdens versus add to their burdens with my uninformed opinions. And that takes discipline because maybe even for men at age 60, we sort of got it all figured out and have an opinion about everything. But it takes more humility to just learn from groups that we don't traditionally interact with.
0: That's I love that thought because um, I, I, there's a friend of ours that was doing um, health uh, public health work in um, down on the Navajo Reservation. It was actually in San Juan County. And I remember him telling us that when they, he, his, his coworkers would, would say things like, well, they do this or they or them. And, and it was really interesting because he said, I, I banned that word. I, I banned that pronoun because I, it, it, it doesn't allow for you to know individuals. You're grouping people. Um, without even thinking about them as individuals and as as humans. And so, you know, he'd say, what do you mean? Who are you talking about? Like, who? <laughs> and he's-
1: I love that. And, you know, I use the term illegal alien to describe someone who was here without citizenship. And someone taught me that's a dehumanizing term. Uh, you understand this, Abby, but I didn't at the time. And your husband understands this, but I recognize that's a dehumanizing term. And if we dehumanize people, it's one step to it's easier to talk negatively about people. But if we just factually call um, people undocumented workers that aren't here with U.S. citizenship, that is not a dehumanizing term. It's just a factual term to describe who they are without doing the things that you just said. So it's just part of coming together as the same human family versus finding ways to divide us.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Um, I wanna keep going on this this um conversation about advocacy and, and how you how you interact in this space. So um we'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison.
1: Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm gonna die today.
0: I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back here with my dear friend, Richard Osler, Papa Osler, as many of you know him. Um let's let's keep talking about this. You You spend so much time with LGBTQ folks. You've written a book, you have a podcast. Um, and so I know you've heard stories. <laughs> and And without getting into specifics, you know what kinds of stories are are folks sharing with you? um and how are these stories? you know, maybe this can help our listeners to really maybe if they're not in a space where they're feeling that empathy for someone. Um in, in the LGBTQ world, like what what kinds of stories are you hearing that can help us to develop that empathy?
1: And maybe just um I'll mention just a little bit more how I got in the space. I kind of um talked about that church assignment in an LDS singles ward and in that assignment was the first time I sat down with a gay person and listened to a gay person tell me about being gay. And it sort of dawned on me that this whole group of people has been defined for me by straight people. And I felt impressed to do what I, I call a computer hard drive reset. I just felt impressed, actually an impression from God, to wipe myself clean of everything I'd picked up about this group because I didn't know it was accurate, Abby or not. And as I listened to a couple of um, gay men in in our congregation I just felt impressed to let LGBTQ people define LGBTQ people for me and that that was how I was going to develop opinions and conclusions and insights about this group because my goal was to lift their burden and my goal was to help them and I recognized on some level that they had a harder road than I did. And so that was the beginning of sort of rebuilding my hard drive by listening to and reading and everything I could kind of get my hands on. And parents often have really good insights into their LGBTQ children. And so I connected with many parents. But um, I think the power of stories is what's key to developing empathy. Um, I couldn't develop empathy for LGBTQ people listening to straight people talk about LGBTQ people. So... For your um, listeners, I think that's what we do as Utons, and come together as Utons is we hear stories of other Utons. There's a lot of Utons I don't know much about um, that are walking roads different than me, but to really help them and to honor their journeys and understand where they're coming from, I need to hear their story. And that just builds empathy. It builds understanding. And to me, that's consistent with my You know my life values and my church teachings is to hear stories and sit. And part of hearing stories is sort of sit with people in their story, even if their story is different than your worldview, or and they've had an experience that's different from you, even if their experience at church, a place that's the balm of Gilead or your happy place, is a painful experience for them. I've learned that. I can validate their painful experience and not compromise my love of my church. Mm-hmm. I can hold both. So even if I love Utah and I hear someone that has a difficult experience as a Utah with some aspect of Utah government for example, I can I don't have to necessarily defend Utah as I hear that story. That's sometimes our natural inclination is to sort of be defensive, but I've in fact I've learned often not being defensive and just sitting with them in their pain and not trying to minimize their pain no one should have to prove their pain abby if i if someone has pain from an experience i should just honor that pain and honor that and i found that and i'm not a therapist but i found that that's sometimes all they need to move on is just someone that will acknowledge their pain and then they often have the ability to move on and kind of put that experience behind them but honoring that pain usually doesn't put a wedge between them and the source of the pain. It doesn't increase the wedge; it often is part of the road to healing. So stories are powerful, and that's what why you're doing this podcast and having Utahns on your podcast is so needed. And and the work you and your husband are doing in our community.
0: Well, thank you. I I I think you're exactly right. I mean, I have. I think like you, I had. Definitions of what, or or thoughts, or preconceived notions of of who people were, or what they believed, and and just sitting down and having conversations with someone, really learning. I mean, even through this summer, um, early on a podcast, we had um, Andrea Demille talking about race relations and her stories of what she's actually experienced, and
1: exactly, and
0: you you can't you you can't tell somebody they didn't experience what they experienced. And um, I think a lot of times we feel like we want to. Um, how do you how do you get around that?
1: Well, I think we have to learn to just sit with the complexities. So if I recognize there's probably racism in me. I did a podcast with some black um, Utahns and I actually felt uncomfortable during the podcast. Um, and I recognize that that uncomfort Feeling I was feeling was actually personal growth as I was being stretched and having to look inward. And I've learned when I feel that feeling is to sit with it a little bit, Abby, and not just dismiss it. There's a side of me that wants to pull away from anything that stretches me. Yeah, yes. (laughs) And causes dissonance or maybe inward looking and say, could I have racist views? Could I have sexist views? Could I have homophobic or transphobic views? that are kind of innocently part of me. And so I've learned, uh, that was fascinating for me because I recognized I was actually experiencing growth as I listened to these two black um, people talk about their experience. And it allowed me to look inward and put aside some of the racist feelings or views that I had. And I looked at it as um, a healthy thing for me. So I think we have to One of the church leaders talks about the massive iron gates of what we already—in my book I quote um, Elder Uchtdorf, which is an LDS leader here in Utah, and he talks about getting past the massive iron gates of what we thought we already knew. And I have massive iron gates of what I thought I knew about lots of groups of people that I never got to know firsthand. And I'll tell you this LGBTQ group I've met with hundreds and hundreds— And the many, many stories, but my heart has grown in ways I didn't think was possible. I thought I kind of was going to step in the space to help them, but Abby, they have helped me. They have taught me things about God, about the gospel of Jesus Christ for our listeners that are Christian, about love and compassion and empathy. Um, My life is better, and in some ways they've rescued me and have helped me— Um, be a better person. Now, I don't want to say that LGBTQ people just exist to help straight people. (laughs) Um, That's not the reason they exist here, is to help straight people grow in compassion. But we need each other. We need people from different races. We need people from different counties that have different jobs, um, that have different—you know, all the differences in Utah. We're talking a little bit about LGBTQ. To me, uh, I love a scripture in— in my scripture, the Book of Mormon, it talks about our hearts are knit together. And to me, that's the goal of, of Utah or of our faith communities, to have our hearts knit together. But to me, that doesn't mean it's all the same color yarn or are they all the same color thread, but we all come together for common goals. And sometimes that heart knit together is even stronger when there's different people coming together from different political parties, Men and women, young and old, educated, not educated, any way we'd sort of slice and dice that, often that's when our hearts are knit together. We can accomplish the most in our faith communities and in our, and in our communities in general.
0: That's amazing. Um, talk about this idea of—we um, we talk about our faith communities. Um, I know that's a place where our LGBTQ friends s- struggle, many many times. Um, do you and obviously we have our, our predominant faith and here in the state. but do you think it goes across faiths? I mean do you think this is a this is a problem or you know this idea of of embracing um, these folks through all faith communities?
1: I do, Abby. I think it's a challenge in probably all or most faith communities. I can't speak for every faith community. Christian, non-Christian, but I think understanding LGBTQ people, I think a lot of faith traditions thought this was a choice, and then that puts the responsibility back on like a gay young man that something went awry and you became gay, so it's back on you to somehow become straight. Mm -hmm. Our church teaches that sexual orientation is not a choice, and that puts the responsibility off a gay person to become straight— and puts it on us as a community or a faith community to create a place, a feeling of belonging. One of the fascinating stories from my life I'll share is in 1980 when I arrived on my LDS mission in Northern England. Our mission president, who's a kind of a guy that is known in the community, Ellis Ivory, he started a, a, build, a home building company. His son now runs it. He was just in his 30s as our mission president, and he felt the culture was too much us versus the Church of England. And he thought, this is actually hurting us because we have this negative message about the Church of England. And he felt our message could just reside on a positive message. We didn't need a bogeyman or a demon or someone to take down. So he did something very creative. He he had all of us missionaries, and this happened right before I got there, so I was, actually wasn't there, um, come to a famous Church of England in England. And we had a mission conference, and the vicar spoke, and the mission president spoke, and he humanized the Church of England for us. And it it was fascinating to me because it's an application of perfect love cast without fear. I had no more fear of Church of England people. I just saw them as my brothers and sisters, and we learned we could take our positive message of our gospel without having to demonize and And to answer your question, I think sometimes in our faith communities, we sort of need a bogeyman or a villain to drive home our message and so we take on the LGBT community as a whole sometimes, and we say unkind things about them. Um, I have sat in meetings where, now that I'm aware of this space, where I hear that at times. And I hear that through the years of LGBTQ students or members trying to make it work. But I think we can just say kind things about marginalized groups of people. That's a great principle for parents, for local leaders, for teachers, for if you say kind things about people that we usually don't say kind things about, then that kind of telegraphs to people in your circle that you're safe, and then they open up to you about what's going on in their life, and then you can really help them. Um, so those are just some thoughts on that question.
0: Yeah, yeah let's let's talk about this idea of acceptance versus um, tolerance. So there's those are two words we talk about. What what do you see as the difference, and where should we be?
1: Um, tolerance to me, and this is going to be different for everybody. It's a great question. Tolerance to me is we kind of just quietly go about and let people live their lives, and we sort of tolerate it, and we might even smirk a little bit as we tolerate and say kind of a half-kind comment, um, except is just to me we um, follow what— I I hope it's okay for you listeners that aren't Christian to reference— um Jesus Christ a little bit. Um he's one of the f- faith leaders I really admire as well as other faith leaders. Um he talks about love your neighbor as yourself. And so to me the foundation of of acceptance is just letting is just loving people. There's no qualifiers for that. Sometimes I think we develop a false dichotomy that to fully love and follow God we have to stop loving some of his children, that it's like a trade-off. And there's like eighty, you know, eighty ounces of of that and you have to allocate it between those two commandments using liquid and al- I'm making stuff up <laughs> on the fly here, listeners. But I th- I think you can do both. In fact, the older I get into parenthood, as our children have differences, we have children that have very different political feelings in our family and we love that. And the thing that makes us happy is not them arguing and trying to pull each other their position but just coming together in unity in their differences. I love the w- idea of unity in diversity. Unity in sameness is kind of a low bar. Unity in <laughs> diversity is where the, we, our hearts are knit together because we have common goals and we use our differences in a positive way. And so I may have forgot what your question was. So I, <laughs> on this acceptance, it does still come. You know, I just think um, we don't say things like love the sin, hate the sinner. To me, that's sort of um, passing judgment. At the end of the day, we're all sinners. And so we shouldn't look at some people as, and, and think there's, you know, we should just say, I love you. Um, and I think we should, it, love to me says, I love you just because you deserve to be loved, not because my love is going to change you or change your religion or change your political party or change your worldview. You just deserve to be loved um because of who you are so one uh, one a contributor to the book talked about what do you do if you're uh, if active in your faith and you are invited to attend a gay wedding um would you go and one of the listeners who was LDS said would you go if your catholic friend invited you to attend um the baptism of a child in a catholic church and most LDS readers said I would go that wouldn't be a problem And she made the point that we just honor people in their life choices, and we just um, allow people to choose what they think is the best path for them, Mm -hmm. and we just sort of walk with them on that road that they feel is their best. And to me, that's acceptance, is supporting them in their decisions and recognize that we don't know the right decision for everybody and being at peace that we let people kind of self-determine their best way forward, and our job is to love them.
0: Yeah, I it's a, such a great thought talking about um this idea that we we don't I see this so much we don't need to um change them. We don't need to mold them to what we think they should be um anybody. Um, and I think we see that a lot. I I've seen that and learned it the hard way with with parenting. Same. <laughs> right? Like Absolutely. I think he, I think you get to this, you know, a little bit further down the parenting road, and you realize, especially as you start with adult, you know, start down the road of adult children, is um, you really thought you were really doing something when they were little? I'm not sure how much I was hurting versus helping. <laughs> But I think, um, you know, that's the same thing with your kids. You can't, you can't change them. Um, you have to recognize who they are. And, um, you know, I, I think you, any parent sees this, especially when you have multiple children, uh, how many different personalities and how they, they just come as themselves. And (laughs) it's, it's a, it's a tough issue, but I, I love the idea you're talking about, you know, also, you know, being, you don't, you don't have to be in charge of, you're not in charge of the decisions they make. And that's okay.
1: And that's okay. It's kind
0: of liberating.
1: It is. Right. It is. And and if your children choose, you know, if you're in a faith community and you want your children to be part of that same faith community and they feel their path is different, I think your goal as a parent is to not feel you failed or things are going to be different in the next life. You just love your kids and keep your family circled together. Do things you can do as parents that are within your control. And often that's just helping everybody to feel welcome in your home and loved and accepted and trust them. Um, Even though we don't always agree as parents or understand their choices. And I've always felt that if I just love my kids where they are without sort of, especially now that they're coming into adulthood, without an agenda, that they'll open up to me about where they are and they're safe. Even if they feel they need to backpedal sometimes, they haven't sort of dug their heels so deep and I've sort of said, well, you go that way and you'll find out. And then it's really hard for them to sort of backpedal and open up and say, Dad, if I sort of say I trust you, um, it may not be what I'd suggest to do. You could be honest, but I'll walk with you. I love the idea that I'll walk with you. I won't sit on the sidelines and root for your failure. I'll walk with you. Yeah. And I want you to, you know, and I'll just be here as your parent to support you as you make your way forward.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's great for all people. Um, let's continue this conversation um, as we talk about maybe what to do or what, and what not to do when it comes to our LGBTQ friends. We'll be right back. We're still here with uh, our my dear friend Richard Osler. We are talking um, all things LGBTQ. We have Pride Month coming um, this this month in June, and um, it's a time for us to really reflect on on those folks that have never not traditionally had a voice, um, have not felt like they are seen, and so it's a time for us to really reflect on that. And that's that's what we want to do here. Um, during the break, I was telling you about a little a story. My my son uh, is in high school, and he has a really good friend. They've been in this play together. They did they did the play together, and um, he's transgender. And um, we've had an opportunity to have him in our home. Uh, we've had an opportunity to get to know him. Our son has gotten to know him really well, and just they've become really good friends. Um, so let's. It's been kind of a a growing experience for us. Like you talk about, sometimes you get uncomfortable and, and, and I know Adam during the play actually came to me at one point and said, there's somebody else that's maybe, I don't feel like is treating him really well. And, and he actually went to, to his friend and, and said, are you okay with this? And that friend was kind of like, yeah, his transgender friend was saying, yeah, it's fine. And so Adam kind of didn't know what to do because he he didn't feel like he could say, well, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the way this other person is treating you. Um, anyway, so let's let's talk through this. Um, that's one thing. We talk about LG, LGB, and sometimes we, a lot yeah. of us struggle with the T.
1: And a couple thoughts. It's one, when you talk about acceptance, and I earlier accept segment, having a transgender person in your home, to me, is acceptance. Tolerance would just say, you know, that's fine. You know, they can be at school. But acceptance means, like your son is doing, having friends and not saying you're no longer my friend because you're trans and having that transgender person in your home. To me, that didn't sell out any of your beliefs, didn't compromise anything you believe in or any of your values, even using the correct pronouns, he... To me, that doesn't cost me anything to use the pronouns that someone wants to use. Um, people, and that's just to me, the grace we extend to each other as part of the same human family. But um, listeners, if you've never been exposed to transgender people, the best way it really starts with the term gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria um, is the best way anybody described it for me. It's like being permanently carsick and we all understand being car sick. It's nauseous. It's we do anything to get out of the car because of the feelings we feel inside. And for a trans person, it's the mismatch between their biological sex and how they feel about themselves. So I'm cisgender. I am biologically male and I feel male. There's no and I feel male. There's no <laughs> dysphoria. There's no pain. And so having to understand that pain that others feel is just, it's impossible for me to do that, except maybe understanding car sickness, a pain I can relate to. And so in my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, it's for an LDS audience, but its principles apply everywhere, a mother just talks about that and her son. And then she talked about transitioning are the steps that one would take to eliminate the dysphoria for some people, that's taking on different pronouns, or changing their hair, or changing their dress, or taking hormones. Um, for those that are LDS, some of those are okay with church teachings, and some aren't. And you can go to the church's website to learn more about that. But it creates empathy instead of just saying, "Oh, they're going to be a girl today and a boy tomorrow," and it's a very shaming, probably uninformed comment. If we before making those comments or feel like this is a sign of the last days, and we kind of buy into that narrative. And I think sometimes that keeps us emotionally safe but prevents us from understanding the complexity of somebody else's situation. And my uninformed opinion would add to their burden with some of those comments. So think of gender dysphoria. I also share the story of Catherine Schweitzer. In 1967, ran the Boston Marathon. She's female. And the assumption in 1967 was women couldn't run marathons. So the race officials ran after her and tore off her number. And she ran the marathon 50 years later, same number. And no one batted twice about a woman running a marathon. So what changed? Well, I think God always knew women could run marathons in 1967. We just didn't understand the science. And to your point, we hadn't heard stories of women that ran marathons. So, in fifty years, will we walk out of a movie theater with tears in our eyes as we talk up better, understand more, perhaps even the science behind someone feels gender dysphoria, and just say, "Oh, I wish I could go back to twenty twenty one and be kinder to trans people um so that's kind of my thought on that and but it's back to you here there's stories, and it is different and sometimes when we talk lgbtq you know gay people sort of come to top of mind and we talk about their experience and sometimes trans people even feel marginalized within the discussion cuz they yeah. they don't really um so i've in the book i wrote i dedicated a chapter just to transgender people um and my experience with those those people and bringing their stories my book um all the proceeds from my book i this is just a labor of love i don't my podcast and my book you can't donate it's all self-funded the proceeds from the book go to a foundation for a young man a gay Young man in Davis County, Stockton Power, that died of suicide. And um, great family were doing a great job of helping him navigate his road. But still, in spite of great parents doing a great job, um, Allison and George Doyson did die by suicide. And I've just, that's part of the reason I stepped in this space. I think we can all agree as Utahns, we want to do everything we can to keep every other Utahn alive yeah. and not think that somebody. This part about them causes them so little hope about their future that they look at suicide as an option. Yeah, um, and the
0: and the the statistics bear that out.
1: They do, and you're right.
0: And and that's one of the things we've focused on because we've we've seen it and we've heard it and we understand that those they're at much much and you probably have the data, but we're at much much higher risk. Um, our LGBTQ and especially our trans folks. Yeah. Um, are the 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 suicide rate and suicide ideation is, is significantly higher than the general population.
1: And I love this quote from Brene Brown, and it's fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming something who you need to be to fit in. Belonging us doesn't require to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. So if you imagine a, a board of, of square holes— those of you that are cisgender or straight are the square pegs. You can fit in because there's a bunch of square holes, and that's a heteronormative society and a culture. But if you're a round peg, which represents an LGBTQ person, it's really hard to fit in. You can try to fit in and pretend to be straight, and that can be exhausting. And and you can't really become a – if I'm keeping my square pegs and round pegs, it's really you <laughs> can't go from a round peg to a square peg. You can't somehow pray this away. You can't go to conversion therapy that, as you know, we don't do in Utah anymore. And so it's on us to create round holes, um, a feeling of belonging for trans, for gay, lesbian, um, bisexual members of our community. And part of that is the pride flag. Um, The pride flag for some listening— Um, conjures up, if that's a word, memories of things that they don't feel comfortable with. I'm 60, so when I see the pride flag, I think of things that I'm not particularly comfortable with. But I'm trying to understand the pride flag in a different way. That to me, a lot of people are using the pride flag just to signal they're safe. Um, For everybody, there's a seminary teacher in Utah County, an LDS seminary teacher, that has it up in her office. And she does that because she wants to signal to her students that she's safe. For not only our straight students but our LGBTQ students, displaying the pride flag to me isn't a sign that we don't support our respective church teachings or we're campaigning for this or that. It's just we just want to communicate we're safe mm-hmm. um, and that we're loving and that we're trying to follow our respective faith leaders charged. It's sort of the practical application of love your neighbor. Now, we don't fly a pride flag at our home. It's just something we haven't felt impressed to do, but I mourn if people are judged in their faith communities for flying a pride flag because their heart is just, I want to help everybody feel like they belong. And often just signaling that I've got a pride flag. Often if you've got an LGBT youth, displaying the pride flag is sort of saying, I love everything about my child. Mm -hmm. And that can create a feeling of hope that creates a feeling that there's hope for me in my future.
0: It's amazing. Um, so what talking about this idea of being an ally or feeling like you're a safe place, what are, what are a few things that you can think of like individuals like, like us can, can do or some phrases that we can use? Um, I know you, talk. sometimes we talk about this idea. I've seen this so much in our, in our media and our social media is a lot of times we're talking about the same word, but n- neither of us are using the s- same definition. Sometimes we have a definition in our life. So, yeah. so sometimes we talk about, oh, we we don't want to be, you know, we're tired of being politically correct. But that, to me, when we use phrases like you talk about using pronouns that people prefer, um, what are some other things that we can do that sort of signal to those around us that we are an ally or we are a safe place?
1: Um I think each person needs to figure out the best way to do that. For me, it was social media, and I just started to say kind things about everybody on social media. And then I did that when I was leading this congregation, and I was stunned of the number of people that weren't actually even attending the congregation that were on our roles that I connected with on social media. And they said, okay, I'm, I'm called a bishop to use LDS just so people understand. They said, I can talk to this guy. I'm not even LGBTQ. But since he's saying kind things about all these marginalized groups of people, I know I can talk to him about what's going on in my life. And I know he's a safe person. And isn't that what we want if we're parents or a friend? And so one of our leaders here in Utah, Elder Renlund, talks about let's be stone catchers instead of stone throwers. And you can get a lot of momentum on social media or even as a whatever, being a stone thrower and just hurtling stones at the other side. Um, You're in the middle of that space, you know, (laughs) leading Utah as First Lady and, and Governor, and there are people that come at you as stone throwers. And there's other people that says, you know, I want to be a stone catcher. And I just think we heal people and we do better when we're stone catchers. That doesn't mean we don't still have our political views and our values. We don't compromise anything. We just... Try to lift the burdens of others instead of being flamethrowers or stone throwers. Um, And then to answer your question, I think of the importance of stories to develop. When I stepped in the space, I didn't know the vocabulary. I didn't know if I'd say things about gay people um, that would be upsetting. I had to learn the vocabulary of that space. I'm still learning it for other spaces, but you have to talk to people in that space or read books or stories um, but that's the way we develop empathy and develop better vocabulary. Love
0: that. Um, let me let me do just some real quick as we as we start to wrap up here um, some some rapid fire questions. Great. Um What do you think people often get wrong about you?
1: Um, that I perhaps not supportive of the LDS Church or that um, you know I'm. So I'm deeply supportive of my local faith, and I share that, listeners, that you can be deeply supportive of your faith, um, or even if you're no faith, and be supportive of other people that are perhaps outside of your faith, um, that we can still do that. That's what my faith teaches is actually to love everybody.
0: Perfect. Um, what's your favorite thing about Sheila?
1: Well, Sheila's a great teacher of our children. Our children are the children they are, and now the adults because of my wife. She has completely dedicated her life to our kids, uh-huh. and that's one of the reasons I fell in love with her, and I kind of knew that about her, and her heart is so big, and she gives to everybody, and she serves so long in our education community.
0: Who are your heroes?
1: Well, that's a good question. I thought that ahead of time, and I don't—nobody—is that the oddest thing that no one really (laughs) comes to mind? I think my heroes, to be honest, are the people that come tell me their stories. Um, The closeted LGBTQ kid who feels safe enough to come and tell me a story or open up on social media or send me a DM um, or for the first time tell their parents they're gay or trans. Um, Those are probably my heroes, those on the margins who we don't traditionally hear their voices— um, I've learned so much from those people in my life. They're my heroes.
0: So what's what's on your nightstand? What, what book are you reading?
1: Brene Brown, Braving the Wilderness. Um, it's very helpful for me about um, not compromising anything I believe in, at the same time going to spaces that I naturally wouldn't be comfortable. And it's given me a framework to do that in a helpful way and that I can do both, that this idea, Brene, Brene Brown debunks this idea, you're either for or against us. Yeah. Um, you can That, to me, gets away from our hearts knit together. We can come together in differences and find common ground. Yeah. That's when some of the greatest solutions are uh, made in our communities is when we get away from either for us or against us, and we come together and find common goals. that's hard to do in the political world right now.
0: It is. It is. And and on a previous uh, episode, we talked to um, Tim Shriver about this very issue. We're working on this. We want to unite. Um, Last question. A snapshot of an ordinary moment that gives you true joy.
1: I I did a podcast with an introvert, Abby, and I realized I'm very introverted. (laughs) It helped me to understand this aspect about myself. And now I understand why in the morning I just go on an hour and a half walk. And it's it's therapy time. I listen to music. I sign to meditate and pray. And it's just it's just my one of it's just a very helpful time for me year round to walk about four miles outside first thing in the morning.
0: Oh, it's perfect. That's what I do. I love to run. I do running for my mental health more than my exactly. physical health. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Um, Richard, this has been such a delight for me personally. And again, being with you in person. Um, just, just really a a joy for me. So thank you so much. And thank you for your incredible insights.
1: Well, thank you. First lady, Abby Cox. It's an honor to be here and thanks for your work.
0: Thank you. We'd like to thank Richard for being our friend today. Richard's book podcast and website are called listen, love, and learn. You can find him on all social platforms at Papa Osler. Thanks for being a friend.